stream I was really unhappy with how the last stream looked like the gaming looked okay but the compression on my camera was so so muddy it was like I don't know what was going on so I changed some settings I did a whole bunch of testing like an hour and a half of testing with different things Trying to make sure I get like a locked frame rate at 60 frames per second. And then right before stream, I was like, oh, I'll change this one thing and we'll be all good. Because I, like, I thought the one thing would make a higher quality, a higher quality compression. And it did not work out that way. Even now, it looks like the compression's bad on the face cam. The camera has been kind of a bone of contention. I do a lot of semi-pro photography and everything. And I do my kind of photography fine art business. And so I use Canon cameras. And so for like a couple of years they had this utility called the Canon webcam utility. And everyone's complained about it because it's never worked right. And now they do this stupid thing where it's a subscription. So, uh, like six months ago, this is kind of a side story. I tried using it, it didn't work well, it was really buggy. And then uh, what I ended up doing is I had two capture cards. So what I ended up doing was I had the capture card uh, get HDMI from the camera, because the camera can output HDMI, and then the other capture card did uh, the Xbox, or the PC HDMI out. This is my idea. It's a miracle it worked. So, uh, for you. this last stream and this stream, I've been using the actual Canon thing, and so it works now. But I don't know if it's OBS that the final compression is having an issue, or that if my face cam, because it's like the contrast is low, it's harder doing the doing like a crisp compression, but that was annoying in my stream. Yeah, so I got the webcam utility to work, like on the first try, and I was like, wow, this is incredible. So they've been upgrading it. And, uh, but there was rumors couple of years ago that they were going to do a subscription thing. So you buy this Canon camera and like they're kind of expensive. And mine was like over a thousand. And then there is a free version of the 
uh, webcam utility. But if you want to change settings, like I think if you want to do 1080p or if you want to do like a lower resolution, uh, you have to open up a subscription and then you can do like settings that you can change. Now you can change all the settings on the camera, uh, except for the resolution and stuff. But if you pay extra, then you can change the settings uh, to the computer instead of having to actually go up and change the settings through the camera. Yes, I don't know why that needs to be a subscription. I think everything's becoming a subscription as a corporate stuff. It's like, oh, you can have it as an expense or like a corporation. And we'll just pay whatever. And then it's like a tax write-off. But I mean if I if I'm buying the camera, it should have those features kind of bundled with it. I mean unless you're giving me a new camera every year. And that'd be cool, that'd be a good subscription. But to just maintain the software that you should really only have to be written once and work for a long time. I know you have to do updates and everything for security, but it can be like a light update, so it has to be like huge feature improvements. Which I don't think they are gonna be doing huge feature feature improvements, but that's neither here nor there. So yesterday I made, I said, oh, you know, I'm not doing any more machine learning stuff, and so immediately I'm working on this. It's not like a documentary, but it's just like things to do in South Africa, and so I'm writing it. It's uh, about seven locations. I have the photography from those locations I'm just kind of writing about my experiences and why you should go there. But as like, you know, the photos I have from it, uh, I went in 2008. And uh, so the camera I had was Canon 40D. So that was a 10 megapixel camera. And like back in that era, like the high end Canons were like 12 megapixels. And maybe I think you could get like an 18 or 20 megapixel. But anyway, the reason why the 40D was 10 megapixels is because it was really for kind of sports and wildlife, uh, where it had a really high frame rate for shooting RAW. Uh, RAW is a higher quality image format. It's not compressed. JPEG is very uh, a smaller file and compressed, but with RAW you get to edit, you get, you know, exactly what the image sensor sees, so you can change the white balance and everything after the fact. shooting such a high frame rate in RAW, you know, each, it's pretty, um, 
and it's pretty much a one-to-one -one ratio for every megapixel it's like a megabyte so a 10 megapixel camera will do about 11 or 12 megabytes uh, for an image and so for a JPEG uh, like a full fat JPEG that might be you know two megabytes but it's usually considerably less so RAWs, it's larger files, uh, higher quality, there's more choices you have when you edit it. Uh, there's more definition in the things you see, but it also records a higher, uh, and a higher range of colors and everything. And it's not necessarily that that looks good, the higher range of colors. You really have to edit the RAWs to get it to kind of the visual Yeah. Which colors you want to pop and which ones you want to uh, discard. Most of RAWs are very low contrast, so if you're shooting RAW, you, you wouldn't um, publish it directly from that. You have to actually edit. But the result is the final edits are crisper, clearer. Um, and can be more vibrant, it's really up to your editing style and stuff. Or you can do like low contrast stuff. But you have the choice to do it uh, when you shoot in RAW. If you're shooting JPEG, there's a little bit of uh, editing you can do to the photo after the fact. But there will be a lot of artifacts, um, like when you edit the darks and everything. Uh, there's not much data you can get out of it. And anytime you edit a digital file, the quality kind of gets worse and worse and worse. So. Shooting in RAW kind of fixes that because the quality is so high that you're just trying to get it down to the best you think it can look. But anyway, so I went to South Africa in 2000 and eight and the camera had did raw but did 10 megapixels and so I'm getting ready to do the flotations the photographic animations and so that's when you're when I animate zooming in and out of photographs so if you're zooming out of zooming into 10 megapixels I'm trying to do it in uh, ultra HD and 4K, and 4K is 8 megapixels, so if your base image is 10 megapixels, uh, you can't zoom in and out that much. And so what I did last night was, um, there's some open source software for AI uh, upscaling, and it's really good. So I rented out a server for $15. And uh, did that. And so it takes the. It's actually funny. Uh, so it takes a huge amount of RAM, like a huge amount. And I'm having it do the Gravis card, which is why I'm renting uh, out the server. So I had, I think it was an A600, 6000 uh, by Nvidia. But anyway, the graphics card had like 32 gigs of RAM. Like that's how much RAM your graphics cards needs. 
and like the my stream PC is only 12 gigabytes of RAM and uh, so I got it up and working but then it would like it crash and saying you know I need you know more RAM so I figured out that I can't do the original 10 megapixels so I had to scale it down to 8 megapixels but then the AI upscaled it to about 30 I think it was like 36 or something 36 megapixels and the reason why I use AI upscaling This is what I'm having. The reason why I do uh, AI upscaling is uh, with normal upscaling, it just takes a pixel and says, okay, I'm going to blend this pixel with the next pixel. And so you have intermediary pixels around it. So it just softens it. And with AI upscaling, uh, what it does is it looks for shapes and colors so it kind of redraws the image so we'll say okay this set of pixels looks like it's like a straight line so we'll actually draw a straight line at a higher resolution on a higher resolution canvas and uh, it doesn't change the image anyway it just when it upscales it there's less artifacts There's still some artifacts you get when uh, uh, there's still some artifacts you get when AI upscaling, but like I said, it's taking eight megapixels and going to um, thirty megapixels, and so when you're animating that, uh, you wouldn't go for like a one-to-one. -one. You wouldn't like enlarge it. To 100%, but you could do like three or four times uh, for UHD where you zoom in maybe and two times or three times, and it will still look fun. But I wouldn't go like four, like a 4x magnification or a 5x, so that it's like a one to one pixel ratio. So I did that last night and I woke up and it was done. It was... It took me a little while. I had the program written in Python. And I'm thinking about making a Google Collab um, version and then publishing that on the Quotations GitHub. I have a Google Collab for self-training on GPT-2 and making your own models. And that's public there now. And what's nice about the GP2 training, it's not like, I don't know, it's annoying when people say like, oh, AI is so dangerous, because it's really not. What AI essentially is, is a really good search engine. And the problem is that so much of it is open source and the community and everything have built it to where a lot of it is actually better than the commercial stuff. So AI is significantly more uh, better at finding the things you're trying to ask it than Google. And so like it's better than Google search. And 
the thing with Google is Google is kind of like a piracy company. They don't do anything. They rely on everyone else to make the content, and then they just kind of direct you to it, and then they make money out of it. And so with Google, their main business model is the more you spend searching, the more you spend online, the more they make. So you pay to get your search results higher. If you own a website, you pay for that advertisement. Uh, if you're advertising products, uh, then they have the, on websites, they'll place the ads and give a small percentage to the website owner. And so, uh, they don't actually make content. They just try to distribute it. And so with AI, the issue is you don't have to go to websites. So if you don't have to be online and you don't have to go to websites, how does Google make money? And the answer is they don't. So it's a huge step to their business model because it finds uh, more information and displays it in kind of the context format instead of like I Google. Like I'm working again on, on uh, this classical music series. And so it's really difficult because I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's this music's beats per minute written in? Because some of the music doesn't have it, you know, written on the sheet music. And so, like, I use I use Google and I'm like, okay, what's like, what's the beats per minute on for Elise? And it gives me all these search results, and it's all this. Uh, information on like, oh, this was written then, this was written there, but none of it, like five or six websites, none of it has the beats per minute, the actual information I'm working on. So then I go to chat GPT and I ask it the same question, like, what's the beats per minute for Elise? And it gives you kind of like a long-winded answer, but the actual beats per minute is right there and easy to see. So it does understand what I'm asking for, and even though it's wordy, like, beats for me to exist. It's giving me more accurate, more relevant search results than Google ever did. So a lot of the stuff, like, oh, AI is so dangerous. It's dangerous to larger corporations because, like, if you have a PC, gaming PC, like a mid-high range one, you can run uh, AI applications locally. You don't have to be connected to the internet. <sighs> Situation just got real. You don't have to be um, connected to the internet to run it. You can have the whole database and look up things that way. And so with self-training, um, what I had on Google Collab is you give it a whole bunch of text. And so like I get text from uh, Project Gutenberg. And uh, you put it in there and then it analyzes and analyzes it. It'll analyze it for like a couple days or so. And then you can ask it questions. Like if, if it's a book, you can say, you know, what is this character? And then it will go and search for what it thinks you most likely mean. And that's what AI really is, is it's just a statistical model where it's trying to find 
the most probable thing uh, you're requesting from it. And so it has no idea what it's doing, there's no consciousness, there's nothing like that. It's just a really high-end autocomplete. And so all these corporations like Facebook, Google, and they're like, oh, we have to regulate it. And so regulation would be like, oh, uh, if your company is this size, you have to submit all these documents to the government and everything and have to get it audited and stuff. So if you're like us, and it's not really the size of the company, it's how many computations you do and things like that. And what the speed of your AI is working at. And so if you're like an independent person or a small developer, uh, to get things certified and submit everything, like that's full-time job for staff and you have to hire anyone. So it really keeps, you know, self-development and the community, it limits that, but corporations have no problem paying for it. So then Google, Facebook, whatever, still has a monopoly on AI and, uh, and everything. So it's really kind of a scam that, uh, is designed to kind of scare the public and then, you know, limit the little guy and uh, keep the corporation safe. Okay, that's it. It was a short test. I like doing these short streams. But okay, here we go. Bye bye, everyone. And I'll publish this on the podcast feed.